0: How exactly are molecular diagnostic tests reimbursed? Is our current coding and reimbursement system up to the task? And how does a new test achieve reimbursement? Our guest today is Dr. Roger Klein. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Roger Klein is a former Health and Human Services advisor to the FDA, CMS, and the CDC and a leading authority on public policies related to the implementation of precision medicine. A physician and an attorney, Dr. Klein was previously medical director for molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and has served in leadership roles in many professional society committees, including most recently chairing the Solid Tumors Division for AMP, the Association for Molecular Pathology. Dr. Klein was a key spokesperson for AMP in its landmark lawsuit, AMP versus Myriad Genetics, in which the United States Supreme Court invalidated patents on breast cancer genes. He's a frequent guest on national radio and television programs. He completed postgraduate medical training at Yale Medical School and got his law degree from Yale Law School roger thanks so much for coming on we've got so much to talk about let's start at the beginning and by the beginning why don't we define that as the early 2000s which saw uh, the advent of new technologies most notably next-gen sequencing but also things such as dna and rna microarrays and even rtpcr which which allowed us for the first time to uh, multiplex to run panels to do multi-gene assays and even uh, tests with an algorithm and a score there was an Institute of Medicine report published in the year 2000 entitled Medicare laboratory payment policy which warned us of an antiquated legacy system for coding and reimbursement and how we were not prepared for the changes in diagnostics which would fuel personalized medicine now is this fair is this accurate were we dealing with a legacy coding and reimbursement system I do seem to remember some hiccups or speed bumps between around 2009 to 2011 uh, with this new onslaught of multi-gene testing. There were concerns that molecular diagnostics were not being reimbursed fairly or even at all in the case of some labs.
1: I, I don't know the exact chronology, but I, the way we started out in molecular diagnostics, we were using method-based stacking codes. And what we, the, the codes were, were strictly technical in their description so uh, you'd have a code for example for DNA extraction and for PCR and the the problem with that system was that a payer couldn't tell what you what what you were actually doing there there was you you could tell that you did PCR could tell that you did sequencing they could tell uh, that you did an enzyme digestion but they couldn't tell what the test was and what the purpose was. I think initially though the the stacking codes worked because the technology was new, the the volumes were were small, and and I think I, I think it accommodated it accommodated a, an introduction basically of technology before we really understood how best to code for it and before it had reached a level of maturation. Of course, there were significant problems with doing it this way. First of all, there was an incentive to maximize as many procedural steps as you could. So, so that was the first problem uh, from, from the laboratory standpoint and, and from an overall a systemic uh, uh, situation. The, the other problem was there was tremendous heterogeneity between Labs, how the, how labs did it, Any particular test? So, in addition to not knowing what the test was and why it was performed, you had you had a hodgepodge of codes, and for people who may have been running the same test.
0: The one thing that stu- stood out in my mind was the system was reasonable for single analyte or single gene testing, but once we uh, got the ability to multiplex or do panels that it might not serve its purpose anymore. And there was possibly the ability to game the system in terms of just adding more genes to your panel, more steps uh, to your assay, so to speak. So
1: I your your point is well taken. And, and absolutely, the, the system that we had could never work in today's world. Uh, we had a transition period beginning around 2009, uh, and a move really initiated by Dr. Jeffrey Kant at at the Association for Molecular Pathology as the chair of the Economic Affairs Committee but also as a member of the College of American Pathologists Economic Affairs Committee we we embarked on a program to create new molecular codes and rather than using method based technical steps the idea was to generate a code system that was analyte specific and so rather than saying PCR and um, probe and DNA extraction and combining these together what we what we did was we'd say for example cystic fibrosis and so the code would be CFTR common variants and and the idea was to capture the testing as it was uh, as it was performed there were many people involved in this in the process ultimately of creating these codes we at the at the amp economic affairs committee we designed a fundamental structure with with two tiers and then that went over to the cap economic affairs committee and ultimately to ama which convened a work group consisting of a wide array of stakeholders who contributed knowledge and expertise and essentially uh, in, information about how their labs performed tests what, and what they were doing. And we reach, reached agreement on uh, well over a hundred codes initially analyte specific codes and and so this is a major major transformation instead of having a bunch of multiples of a PCR step for example you actually provided codes that that described exactly what was done and could be paired uh, easily with and, and checked against uh, and, at the time icd9 codes and, and so it was a it was it was a very substantial transformation but made the codes much more similar to for example microbiology which had undergone a, this type of transition and had analyte specific codes.
0: Before we go any further, I think for the benefit of our listeners, we should maybe take a step back and define our terms and be clear about what we're talking about here. So I think there's a lot of moving parts to coding and reimbursement, and I think oftentimes the wires can get crossed. So when we talk about coding and reimbursement, we're talking about three things. And I think first is coding, which consists of CPT codes, which are developed by and are the intellectual property of the American Medical Association. Then there's the regulatory aspect. Uh, Of course, there's the FDA, CLIA, as well as state agencies. And then there's the payers, the largest being CMS, and then, of course, uh, private payers.
1: Yeah, so, so that you did a great job in summarizing that. They, so the CPT codes, as you suggest, are owned by the American Medical Association, which is why, as I mentioned previously, AMA was the, was the entity that convened the work group to create these codes. And as you um, also suggest, in our initial structure, we looked at more conventional tests, single-analyte uh, type tests or non-algorithmic tests in the code structure, and what we, we had the first eighty-five um, percent or so of volume we put into into what was called tier one, and each of these tests, uh, these higher volume tests, had had its own code, and then we had a, a what was called tier two, and I believe it was nine levels, where. We grouped codes based on the the uh, resource inputs needed to perform the tests. Now, ultimately, we then had to accommodate what the newer tests that were coming online, which were uh, which ended up to be called multi-analyte uh, al- algorithmic um, assays. Uh, uh, M triple was the uh, abbreviation. So these tended to be proprietary tests, and they were a new kind of test. They were they tended to be Done by one lab. They were tests that required substantial investments, and the, um, I'll call it intellectual property behind the test was really created by single entities, whether these were, whether it was an academic center that licensed a test to a company or whether it was a company itself but these were very these were different in nature than for example a cystic fibrosis test which you would which many labs would do and maybe they would purchase kits or maybe they would create their own but these were tests performed widely so we created a system to accommodate these uh m tests we put them in an appendix appendix o in the cpt book and essentially you you could list the the exact test um, the manufacturer cetera, and you listed the the assay in the uh, in the CPT book and anybody with in appendix O who had for example met certain volume thresholds and could show that uh, that the test was accepted in the medical community that they had literature support could apply for a, a category one code and could could also get it could convert their code into category one but we had this we we allowed um, Essential. Well, what was essentially a, a, an identification system.
0: So, is getting a CPT code necessary for reimbursement, Roger? I seem to remember several of these multi-analyte tests operating without one.
1: Some of those companies did apply for CPT codes. One of the things about those tests was that they're because they're done by a single lab. For example, they're not dealing with a multiplicity in most cases of Medicare contractors. They deal with with one contractor.
0: And what's the relationship between a CPT code and regulatory considerations? I think there may have been a lot of misconceptions out there that FDA approval or clearance would lead to a CPT code, or vice
1: versa. Uh, that has somewhat limited relationship uh, to the to the coding. It may it there is some some potential relationship to uh, to reimbursement. Uh, Typically, in the lab area, from the CPT standpoint, the American Medical Association hasn't made that a criteria for lab tests that were were have been performed under CLIA standards, Clinical Laboratory Improvement Standards. hasn't been involved with FDA. Um, there, there are not there are some new things that came out in, in the in a law called PAMA, Protecting Access to Medicare Act, the laboratory provisions, which which changed that somewhat, but but typically the regulatory concerns have had limited uh, impact, certainly on coding, and uh, and I, I think largely they haven't been that important for reimbursement.
0: Yeah, and what about the payers, Roger?
1: And that's a really important area that's been a complex challenge. Uh, Med- Medicare had a lot of trouble dealing with these new tests, and one Medicare contractor kind of filled the void. Uh, Palmetto and a uh, physician, their medical director, their uh, her name was Elaine Jeter, set up uh, a program called X that took a much more intensive look uh, at molecular tests. She even developed an internal coding system, which was uh, which was one of the reasons that uh, there was probably probably one of the reasons that there was less. Necessity for some labs to uh, to obtain CPT codes, they could use an unlisted code and then use the 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 Palmetto codes. But there there are so Palmetto now has about half of the country are reimbursed Medicare tests are reimbursed through the Modex program. the The rest are um, handled. The claims are processed and the the um, payment, the local coverage determinations are are made by other contractors. And then you have this whole Sphere of many private insurers, some very large like United Healthcare, uh, some uh, some smaller, uh, and and then we're we're getting even a newer iteration. We're getting um, what are called laboratory benefit managers that are fulfilling the the role that Molnyx plays for Medicare. Uh, for Medicare contractors, the, these laboratory benefit managers are looking at at utilization. They're they're doing a, a deeper dive in looking at the tests, and uh, because this is an area that is um, is impactful, can lead to expensive therapies, and and is growing rapidly, uh, but but is still small and, and requires substantial expertise. There's a niche for some additional private companies that that can help the help insurance companies ad- address uh, address some of these uh some of these issues and help them with their claim processing and their uh, coverage determinations.
0: Yeah, so I think MALDEX has actually done a very impressive job and their body of work is quite extensive. I remember I was skeptical at first, but I would say, in my opinion, it appears that MALDEX has served to facilitate uh, the reimbursement for these tests and allow more of them to actually be used in clinical practice rather than being an impediment that many people feared.
1: I, I think that's that's right. So, so, for the MAAA tests, the single source tests, many of them were located, many of the companies were located in Palmetto's jurisdiction, and I think that Pal- the molddiX program was particularly well suited to to address those tests. So what tended to happen sometimes though is the the routine, the more routine tests would get sort of lost in the shuffle. They'd get the tests that were widely performed. There was there were, there were uh, substantial demands placed on laboratories uh, in order to uh, to get paid. I think that there the reimbursement often was um, disappointing to some, and I and so I think historically there's been tension uh, tension more with uh, prov- with the large mass of providers of more conventional tests that are are widely distributed versus. The tests that were sole source. Of course, we now the the program has changed, and they've gone through some iterations, and I think they are working out uh, a number of those problems. They have uh, recently have had some newer leadership, and uh, as the programs matured, they're adapting to uh, to the current environment, and uh, probably those complaints are uh, less common. I think maybe people are have gotten used to it, and it's. Um, and they're they're less concerned about Moldex as an obstacle, and and more trying to work with uh, Palmetto as a partner
0: yeah maybe that's my bias showing because i was impressed by their position on what they called innovator tests like you said those are the tests performed at a single lab and they say uh and i mean i think it's true these labs these tests and these labs have different cost structures than a traditional lab or an academic lab who are running panels or other non-proprietary tests and i think they did a nice job of, of acknowledging that and trying to have reimbursement reflect the costs that were invested in the test
1: yeah, I, th- I think the I think the X program was particularly well suited for for those types of tests, and in fact, it solved a problem because those tests were also hard to analyze. Whether wh- whether to pay for them and how to price right. them, they were much more difficult. I think that the what what the problem that's come in in the more uh, the more routine tests is you have multiple labs, for example, doing the same test. We have a CPT code for the for the test, but still they want Palmetto has placed itself. It, to some extent, in the in the shoes of a regulator wanting detailed information about everybody's individual test, uh, and and these are often smaller laboratories. These are often smaller laboratories participating uh, that are are somewhat resource constrained, don't have the um, ability to get too bogged down with paperwork. Molecular diagnostics has historically been dominated by laboratory developed tests. Very few. Tests have gone through FDA, but you have many, many providers which are offering a test for or the same or a similar test for the same analyte. The philosophy between in CPT has always been, for example, it's a glucose, it's a glucose. Doesn't matter how you do it, you have one code and you get paid a certain way uh and and that was and the cpt structure for molecular was built similarly if you do a braf test it's the braf test doesn't matter how you do it it's it's braf and we have a code for it uh but what happened was palmetto has each lab apply for their own code and this this is contrary to the way it's been done in the past and again I think that it it works really well for the these uh, algorithmic proprietary tests, these M AAA's, anything that's unique and sole source. Certainly, this is a a very appropriate way to address uh, address the test. But I think some question the need for for the for a multiplicity of of these types of codes. And I also there's a um, a technical component. They do technical assessments on these tests, which is really a a, a regulatory function that's provided in other areas by other other sources uh labs are regulated under the clinical laboratory improvement amendments. The College of American Pathologists accredits many labs and inspects inspects labs and and uh, and they're um they're subsuming uh some of that function
0: that was my one reservation with maldex is are they overstepping their bounds? And to an outside observer, it might even appear that MALDEX is not even aware of the CAP. They certainly seem to be duplicating many of their functions. And as a pathologist, I'd certainly like to see the CAP take take on a larger role in this area.
1: Well, I think there was a tension with CAP throughout, as as well as um, AMA. Palmetto is a government contractor. And so they're, they're representing Medicare in their sphere. And the ability to um, push back on things, on, on programs, you know, is, can be relatively limited. So there, there, was, there was certainly tension because many of the functions that Palmetto was assuming were done, were already done or performed uh, through CAP and, and through AMA. And I think the processes at both of these entities, uh, AMA particularly, but CAP, was a much more was an inclusive process that attempted to bring in many stakeholders for input and tried to create a system that would best meet the needs of laboratories and payers through conversation. And I think, and whereas the the moldex program was more of a top-down design program, uh, kind of a take-it-or-leave-it. You know, we we they're the contractor; they can decide what needs to be done. There were opportunities for feedback. They, it, it wasn't it wasn't funda- it was not fundamentally an inclusive process that that was designed and built by a multi- by multiple stakeholders. So the
0: wires certainly do get crossed and the lines blurred between these areas of coding, regulatory, and payers. And I think maybe that may also contribute to the confusion and and lack of transparency into this whole process. In terms of a new lab or a lab developing a new test, I think it's very tempting to think there's a, a magic bullet, so to speak. And if you just get a CPT code, your test is going to get a favorable reimbursement. Or if you get FDA approval or FDA clearance... That that's the road to reimbursement, but ultimately the decision lies with the payer. Is that right?
1: Yes, we're in this in a very strange environment. We have a situation now where, for example, certain tests in a, in the in the PAMA statute were accorded CP a a code any some type of code Um, what people don't necessarily understand this but Medicare has the ability to make codes they were called G codes now they call them U codes but Medicare can create its own codes but typically what they do is they and these are called HCPCS codes by the way HCPCS HCPCS codes and what people don't necessarily always understand is that CPT is level 1 HCPCS so basically Medicare adopted CPT uh, as their picks codes and so what happened was in the PAMA law certain codes uh, certain tests particularly those that are FDA approved can are eligible for their own code and in response AMA set up uh, codes called PLA codes and and the, the proprietary codes that um, for which just like with the MAAA there's no real criteria other than the test is offered for obtaining one, so you can get this. Anybody can get this code as long as they offer the test. And now you have a bunch of laboratories that have been applying for these uh, these PLA codes, and they're getting individual codes for their individual tests. And it it's um, it remains to be seen how how that works. Uh, how that works basically uh, both with Medicare and uh, and especially with private payers.
0: So let's talk about Medicare. Many people may not realize that uh, Medicare, which is administered by a CMS, is bound by law or by statute. Title, title 18 of the Social Security Act states that Medicare will only pay for procedures that are reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis and treatment of illness or injury. And then further goes on to say that Medicare is prohibited from paying for any claim which re- which lacks the necessary information to process the claim. Now, as a taxpayer, that sounds great. In theory, the government is not going to be wasting our money or squandering it on tests that are not indicated. But has that caused tension or blocks to adopting new diagnostics?
1: Well, it does. The the so what reasonable and necessary itself is um, is is not not defined anywhere. And it's, it's difficult to, to understand what, what that means. And I think what, what the way CMS, and, and I think in lines to some extent with other payers, the way CMS has, has looked at this is really from a, the standpoint of clinical utility. Does, it, does this improve, does the use of the test, or is there evidence that the use of the test improves improves patient outcomes, uh, does it change physician behavior as a surrogate to that? Is there some impact from, from using the test on patient care that appears to create a benefit uh, to patients? That's how I think it's been mostly viewed, you know, as a clinical utility, uh, on a clinical utility basis, and I think there, there's, there's always a tension how much evidence is enough uh what whether uh d- does a particular test have sufficient data to to uh, to to justify paying for it um how, how much data is is required and i and, and this it it gets into um a sticky wicket sometimes for companies I and mean, you'll hear companies say well what do we have to show and of course that 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 that's part of the question. What do what do, what do we have to show? What do we have to do? But uh, but looking. But the the real analysis is supposed to be an objective one in the sense that uh, that it's it, we're it's that we don't know prospectively whether or not something is actually beneficial or useful. We don't know until it's studied. And and I think. And, and so there, and there often lies lies tension because people have made substantial investment in tests. They they feel that they work. They feel that they benefit patients, but the uh, the 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 payers, particularly at Medicare and elsewhere, want to see objective data that in in studies that are unbiased that that show that that patients are likely to benefit from. Use of the test,
0: Roger. We've covered so much, but yet it feels like we've barely scratched the surface. We must have you on again. Tell us, how can folks find out more about you?
1: Oh well, uh, I have a website, um, Roger D. Klein, R O G E R D. Klein, K L E I N. Uh, dot com, uh, and I I post a I, I do a lot of writing and uh, post uh, links to articles and. Uh, and other uh, appearances and that sort of thing.
0: Roger, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yes, thank you, Joe, for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Our guest has been Dr. Roger Klein. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.